I'm Harriet Smith and welcome back to Dietitian Cafe where we'll be discussing the world of nutrition and dietetics. We hope that you and your families are continuing to stay well and safe during lockdown. This episode is of course being recorded remotely but nonetheless we are delighted to have with us Orla Walsh. Born in Dublin, Orla qualified as a dietitian from King's College London. She initially obtained an honours degree in physiology and has since completed an MA in physiology before going on to achieve a master's in clinical nutrition and a postgraduate diploma in sports and exercise nutrition. Orla is a qualified dietitian and a member of the Irish Nutrition and Dietetic Institute and Self-Employed Dietitians of Ireland. As a freelance dietitian, Orla's business, Orla Walsh Nutrition, provides nutritional advice for medical conditions and sports performance, as well as guidance on optimizing general well-being through tailored diet plans. She regularly gives talks and presentations to schools and companies at health and well-being seminars, and she provides nutrition consultancy for media publications. So hi, Orla. Welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. So we're going to dive straight into the podcast. Can you tell our listeners where your interest in nutrition and dietetics stems from? Uh, well, if I'm honest, I didn't even know it was a job until I was just finishing up my degree in science. Um, I don't know how I never came across it. So I studied science because I liked maths and I liked biology and then I loved physiology and I was lucky enough to specialize in it. And then it was in our third year and near the end of our third year, and we, it was a four year degree um, that we had healthcare professionals come in and just have a chat with us about what they do. I always presumed I'd become a physio. Um, I don't know why. Um, then, I, then I suppose I heard the medics talk and I was like, maybe I'm supposed to go into medicine and that's where most of the class went. But the dietitian spoke and I just thought, oh my God, you know, something that considers physiology, uh, maths, and food and I just thought well this is this is it and I just went home and it was the quickest considering like your job is something you spend most of your life doing it was the quickest decision and the surest decision I've ever made and that's really what started me on the path to becoming a dietitian so um you know, there, there's very few opportunities at postgraduate levels, especially then. I think there were seven and none within the Republic of Ireland. So I did a master's in clinical nutrition after physiology. And um, that was a master's that dietitians did. So I knew I was going to become a dietitian. So I did that master's because it was just doing the chicken before the egg. And uh, that also managed, it, it completed the modules I needed to get into dietetics. And I got into dietetics in King's College which was one of the, my proudest moments. Brilliant and um, yeah I'm a fellow King's College alumni. Um, so prior to you studying at King's did you do any sort of work experience? Did you get, get experience of working in a clinical setting? Um, how did you go about the transition from your physiology background into dietetics? Um, well, the Masters in Clinical Nutrition helped. I did shadowing of uh, a dietitian who's now a friend of mine, Rochelle Flanagan. Um, she went to the same secondary school as me and played hockey and, you know, at the same sort of level and things like that. So we had loads in common. So I, I shadowed her in private practice. And that was, I suppose, my only real taster of it because you weren't really able to get into hospitals to shadow. And um, I went to the interview into the post grad in Kings relatively 
really quite unprepared um, in some ways. And um, I, I did prepare but the, all the wrong stuff. And But I think I just had the crack with Kevin Whelan. And I don't know if that got me in, but uh, yeah. And Jane Thomas. And yeah, we had, we had banter during the session. So I left kind of going, geez, they're going to be so amazed by how little I know about nutrition and dietetics but you know we had fun and I, I got the call I got in so it was amazing I was very lucky. Wow and you haven't looked back since and um, the postgraduate course was that um, one or two years I, I forget how long it was at King's. At King's it's 18 months uh, for the postgrad and then you can have the opportunity to go on to the master's but it's very expensive to live in London and um, you know especially if you're not earning so it was just impossible for me to go on to do the master's um, although I would have liked to because obviously great research comes out of King's so I you know, I, I would have loved to have been involved, but it just wasn't available to me. But it was a hard 18 months. You know, they want the very best from you and um, they, they're very supportive. Um, Christine Baldwin probably was my knight in charming army on my C placement. And I'll never forget the help she gave me during that time. So, yeah, I, I, I would do anything for Kings. I'd lay down and die for Kings. Uh, it was just a wonderful course and wonderful teachers. And, and what did you do as your first job after leaving King's? Did you work in the NHS initially? Did you have a clinical role or did you return back to Ireland? Um, so I, I had to leave because of the rent situation. So I, le I left um, during the snowstorm. My dad came and picked me up in the camp van and we tried to drive back to Ireland and I'll, we had to stay overnight in a petrol station. Oh, it was a disaster. Anyway, so we went back to Ireland and I worked for free for eight months in a hospital in Ireland. Um, and you know, after I qualified and um, shortly after I had, there wasn't many jobs because the recession had, was very much <laughs> under underway in Ireland. So there was hardly any jobs, but I did have a job offer, well, certainly an interview. And I always am so confident on my, um, <laughs> for some reason, I thought they were just going to hire me. But um I, I had an interview for a hospital job and an interview for a maturity cover in a dietetic clinical practice, um, Avine Bannons. And um, I met her. We had so much fun. Again, all my interviews are just crap. But we had so much fun. I, 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 you know, she was just so lovely. I met her family and it was a match made in heaven. And, you know, I'm nine years now in private practice. I, I covered her mat leave. She gave me a great stepping stone, uh, loads of guidance. She still gives me guidance and... I just went straight into private practice from there. So can you tell us a bit more about that transition into private practice? I think there are a lot of dietitians, particularly dietitians who work in the NHS at the moment, who yeah. are interested in transitioning into private practice, but it seems like a big leap of faith. So how did you yeah. go about building such a successful empire that you run today? Well, to be honest, I rode on the coattails of Avine's business. So she was established for 10 years and she offered me as much support and as much help as I wanted. And I took every bit of it. Um, in order to be successful in private practice, you need a couple of things. You need to be self-motivated and um, for sure you can't be someone that relies on motivation for others you have to be extremely hard working um, so there's just no if you're if you're not that person if that's not how you describe yourself just don't do it um, you also have to be a bit ballsy you have to be somewhat confident in yourself and in your ability or at the very least pretend you're confident and be a really good pretender um, and once you have some of those skills as well as communication skills um, you'll be away in a hack you see it's so important 
you can know loads as a dietitian, but your academic, like your academic knowledge, what you know is totally and utterly useless if you can't describe it to people in really simple, basic terms. And if you're not able to do that, if you make something sound complicated or hard to follow or difficult to understand, um, for one, it suggests you don't know it well enough, but you know, that's the be all and end all in private practice. You, you have to, you have to be a good communicator. Mm-hmm. And how have you built those communication skills with your clients over the years? Do you um, have sort of peer supervision if you're in private practice? Yeah. Do you work alongside other dietitians? Oh, I don't know. You either have it or you don't. I know I should come on here and say motivational interviewing courses are brilliant. They're a load of nonsense and they teach you to nod along, um, you know, to to people and some basic human skills. Um, no, I think if you you know, you can get better at it if you're not good at it, but you either have it or you don't. Um, I, I bounce off other dietitians. You've got to have enough, I suppose, enough self-esteem to share what you don't know with people um, and be completely open and vulnerable. And we have a self-employed dietitians group in Ireland and we're like a little family and you, I can ring up any one of them and say, here, listen, I've got this. I actually don't know what I'm doing or just be completely honest and they will help and guide you. And, you know, they're, they're entrepreneurs, they're businesswomen, and they're highly intelligent dietitians. And you just have to bounce off others and you have to not be afraid to do that. Um, and I think, I think, do you know the way when you go traveling and you, you, you do a bit of traveling and you realize how much of the world you don't know? Dietetics is like that. You can study it all you want. You can keep studying it. But really, all the study in the world will teach you is that how much you don't know. And you just have to be aware of how much you don't know. You have to be aware of your boundaries and you have to have the thirst uh, for knowledge and, um, you know, and, and being o- open with other dietitians um, and greedy for information um, really will serve you well. Uh, but you, you have to keep, you have to want to keep learning. Mm-hmm, I agree. And in the UK, we have the freelance um, dietitian group. I'm not sure if you're a member of that run by Anne Wright, but it's an incredible group. Everyone's posting questions each day. And, you know, there's always somewhere, someone out there who's been through what you're going through. Or- yeah has a contact. Um, In your clinical practice, do you specialize in any specific um, uh, medical conditions or do you you sort of cover cover everything? I try not to specialize um, as hard, but the thing is, is that you naturally might become good at something. So people, more and more people will come to you for that. So you will specialize by accident, really. Um, I I try not to, I, I try to see and do everything it keeps me on my toes it keeps me learning um you know I think as well as that there's certain things that in private practice people are willing to pay for and will you know advice that they want with sports nutrition there's plenty of sports nutrition advice I feel online so some people will come to you because they want to just capitalize on what they you know on their their area but I I think mainly I think good health remains just very much something that everyone wants to know more about and wants a happier gut. Um, weight loss will always be a, a big part of it. Um, disordered eating and fertility. Fertility is probably one of my number er- one areas um, and it's it's growing. And I suppose if you were to ask people what I'd be known for, it, it might be that. So let's talk a bit more about that fertility um, speciality because I know in the UK it's an area where not a lot of dietitians, particularly those in freelance, yeah. are working within. First of all, why do you think that is? 
Um, and, and secondly, how do you apply your dietetic knowledge to help your patients with fertility? Um, I suppose it's an area, you see, dietitians tend to be quite nerdy people, like super nerdy people. And they want, they're, they're very, they're of course evidence-based and they want strong evidence and everything. And when it comes to anything to do with females in health and medicine, there's, there's not enough research on us. Um, and it will usually be the females coming to you um, uh, for fertility advice, even though that it takes two to tango. Um, and they might be coming to manipulate their partner's um, diet without them knowing. But, you know, there's there's not enough evidence there to to do or say anything with total confidence. It's not like heart disease or something like that. Um, so I suppose dietitians don't like working in an area that there isn't rock solid evidence there and there's a huge amount of emotion um and there's a massive amount of emotion it's the most emotional journeys um people may go on in their entire lives and it means so much to them so i suppose it, it's it's that reason i would say um dietitians like things they like to be able to nerd up and just be so confident in everything they do and everything they say and you can't really be Mm. So are there any, I presume there aren't much nutritional guidelines out there based on fertility and it's an emerging area of research, would you say? It is emerging area and thankfully it's emerging, emerging on the male side and male interest and I'm getting more and more people coming in and you know I'm like what brings you to my clinic today and they're like I want to eat better for my sperm and it's just music to my ears but um you know I think it is an emerging area and there's there's information that you can gather and it's not even just about nutrition it's about even it's all lifestyle you know so you can help people improve their diet which uh, will increase their uh, fertility chances but you have to look at other areas you can't not talk about sleep or alcohol or smoking or or, you know, are they wearing really tight underpants? Um, you have to talk about these things. You have to talk about cycling. You have to talk about, um, it's just lifestyle and stress as well, of course. But you also have to talk about how often are you having sex? You know, and I suppose it's a very intimate question to ask people. But especially in the younger generation who are just more inclined to, you know, stay up watching box sets and have sex. You know, it's the, the most um, research is suggesting that we're a really sexless generation. So I think you have to be comfortable with with saying sex over and over. Yeah, I'm sure that's a prerequisite. And, and presumably, you're working with these clients on an ongoing basis. Do you, you develop a fairly good relationship with them, and it must be incredible to you know travel with them on their fertility journey. Yeah, and you know, you try not to live for the moments. You get the text with the um, you know with the picture saying that they're you know that they're pregnant. Um, because you know it's not always going to end in success and it is an extremely emotional uh, journey and I suppose you need to be empathetic and not sympathetic you, you know it, it isn't your journey and um, but you certainly have to feel what they're feeling or be able to put yourself in their shoes in order to help guide you because there will be times where you need to kind of pull back and say you know um let's be realistic about chances or you know bring um bring realism into the room so um going back to you know being a parent you're you're a mother yourself how do yeah. you juggle um, running a successful freelance business alongside being a mum particularly during covid it must be difficult 
Yeah, it is challenging. And, you know, I didn't get a paid maternity leave and I had to um, I had to hand over my business in some ways to someone else so that they can run it until I came back. Um, and they, you know, they're not you. And so that's challenging. You know, I was I was answering emails within, you know, while breastfeeding in the first week of giving birth. And that's just the reality. So. But that prepared me for COVID because while everyone else is saying, oh, it's really hard to work and mind your children. I'm like, well, that was mad leave for me, you know. Um, so I'm, but I'm not nailing it. You know, all I know is how to survive it. And it is challenging. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to have, you know, a husband or a partner basically. And he, you know, we work in shifts and um, we try not to get down about the house being a mess and try to eat well and try to exercise and, you know, for physical and mental health as well as do good jobs as parents. So you just have to prioritise and become extremely efficient. Mm, yeah, and that goes back to what you were saying is essential if you're going to succeed in freelance, being motivated. Yeah. Um, so how has your business been affected by COVID? I know lots of freelance dietitians have lost a huge amount of clinical work. Have you had to pivot your business model at all? Have you taken things online or was that something you were already offering? Um, I was offering it a bit like I had to step up my game in the tech world for sure. Um, and you know, now it's all online at the moment. Um, if I'm really honest, it hasn't dropped off. Um, it's, you know, I, I, to be honest, is if you, there's a waiting list, like if you want an appointment with me, it will be in three months time to know that initial consultation. So, you know, I'm lucky in that my business is booming um, and I do a lot of corporate work and that's going well as well for me. So I'm actually lucky that I suppose in some ways I'm, I'm nine years now established. So um, it would be difficult if I was one or two years established or it'd be difficult if I was part-time to begin with. So, you know, if I was doing a bit, but not a lot. So, um, you know, it hasn't changed all that much, but you do need to upskill in terms of, um, you know, and, and even buy new gadgets. So like I have a new webcam, I have new earphones, I have new computer screen, all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, have you already been offering your clinics online? Do you use a sort of system like DoxyMe um, for video video consultations? How does that work? Yeah, so to be honest, I'm lucky. So although I'm not necessarily working for Avon Bannon um she manages nearly everything for me if I'm really honest so she so basically um I have my own business order wash nutrition but I see people in her clinic so I kind of have room space in there and she just handles everything she's like my big older sister so um you know there's she's big by tall by the way um she's like six foot or something but she you know she does everything for me so I'm kind of spoiled in that way and even I'm spoiled in the fact that like my husband is a techie so he he just took control of that so really I've done nothing all I've done is um been available for consultations yeah I like to think I contract out to the right people or I've made friends with the right people but no they've they've done everything Avine always does everything for me to be honest so would you say having systems in place is really essential for running a, um, you know, a succeeding business? It is, yeah. But you just need to, I think people focus too much on business models and systems and stuff like that when you actually have to think what is the biggest selling point and that's you. And it's you, you as you're like, everyone's an individual and 
you know, you are the selling point. Um, so I think people can get too bogged down in all of those things and just miss the really important basic thing is that you will be successful, successful if you work hard, if you know your stuff and if you are th- authentically you. Um, so what would be a huge mistake, especially since social media is such a big part of it, is if you were to go on it and try and be anyone but you. So the people that ex- succeed and are really, um, you know, quite well known on on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, or on any of those sites are people that are very much themselves. And, you know, people can relate to that. People can spot when you're being in any way false from a mile away. And um, I think people succeed when they are authentically themselves because they're bringing something unique to the table, know their stuff and work hard. So, yeah, you, you can have systems in place and stuff like that. But if, if you if you focus on the little bits rather than the big picture, you won't succeed. So you mentioned um, social media. I know you've got a big presence on your social media platform. What Can you remind us what your Instagram tag is or how do we find you on Instagram? Oh, it's just Orla Walsh Nutrition and I'm that on Facebook and my website's that and it's on Twitter. It's just Orla C. Walsh because I didn't have enough characters. But I have a presence, but I wouldn't say it's major. You know, I'm not the gut health doctor or anything like that. <laughs> but how are you finding, how are clients finding you? Is it through word of mouth or is it through social media? Uh, probably were the mouth. So, um, you know, I suppose, you, you know, you have to be, I, you kind of do it naturally, but you, you become like friendly with all the doctors in your area or um, uh, the nurses and stuff like that. And they'll refer on, um, you know, I suppose Ireland is small. We've, we're lucky in that way, you know, there's, we're always just one connection apart. So um, word of mouth is probably the strongest bit. Um, and like I said, if, if you're in the business for nine years and open to clinic for nine years, and like I said, I'm probably still on the coattails of Avian Bannon, who's now 19 years uh, in private practice. I suppose together we're a strong duo and uh, we're only going to get stronger. But, um, you know, I, I think it is word of mouth. I, I think that the Instagram presence can be all great, but I don't think it's the moneymaker people think it is. And I don't think it generates as much business as people think it is. So people apply too much time there and too much energy there when really it it goes back to, you know, are you known for what you do because you're good at it and that will keep bringing people uh, through your door. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of the American dietitians, I'm sure you've seen, you know, they follow these coaching models and they build up this brand presence with all these pictures yeah. of themselves holding up, you know, boards. Um, and, and they're the ones that are niching down, you know, they're really focusing on just yeah. the ability dietitian. Um, I haven't noticed a similar pattern in the UK or Ireland. I don't know if you've, if you have any thoughts on that. No, you know, obviously Nick's nutrition comes to mind and that she's very famous for what she does and very successful. But, um, you know, we don't do that. Like you have to remember you're a dietitian, not a celebrity. Um, No one gives a crap about your personal life. You know, they just are following you for dietetic advice. Um, And, you know, oh, listen, when you see some of those things that they'll, they're w- willing to do on Instagram, Scarlet, like so embarrassing. No, I couldn't, I couldn't be having any of that. And I think as well, I, I, I will never become someone so tailored on Instagram either because people know that's not me, you know, um, you know, half the time, sure, I don't even have my hair brushed um, or have mascara running down my face. You just, 
like I think you're not supposed to be polished on there it's supposed to be real and you know we're not celebrities we're not influencers we're we are dietitians and I think that there is a gray area that you can start slipping over into an area where you might think you are or might behave like you are and that's really dangerous because you know that's not a professional area you're a professional you're a dietitian you have standards to follow um, and if you get sucked into that life um, you might you might leave some of your professional standards behind you. So on that point let's talk a bit about working with brands and doing consultancy yeah. because sometimes brands do want dietitians to talk about them on social media yeah. or, or give a sponsor review or blog post for example. Um, is that something that, that you do um, and for other dietitians interested in working with brands how do you navigate that grey area and make sure you're doing things correctly? Yeah so I suppose it's I, I do work with brands. I do work with companies. I'd rather them work with me than someone who has no qualifications in nutrition and is going to spout anything. Um, and also I, I want them to work with me for brand safety because you see people saying things like health claims and nutritional claims that are not following the EU legislation um, and that's dangerous too. So I want them working with a professional. I want them working with a dietitian. In other words, um, I do work with them. I would be very careful who I work with. Um, you know, I would only work with the, the brands that I can stand behind you know, with a straight back, um, there's you end up saying no to a lot of people because you're just like, no, your your product or your brand or something just doesn't fit right. And you have to be very careful. So I can't say buy this product because this product's deadly, but I can say, you know, these nutrients are important for X, Y, and Z. And um, these nutrients are found here and they're also found in lots of other places. So you have to just make sure that you're you're following the professional code of conduct and your own professional code of conduct. Um, but it is a gray area because as a freelance dietitian, you do work with companies, you do work with brands and your Instagram is showing what you do on a regular basis. So you either put it up for free, but it's still included in your costing, um, you know, being associated with you or you you put it up there and are completely honest to those following you and say, listen, you know, as part of working with them, they want me to share this knowledge with you and I am getting paid for this 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 post. And it's about being completely honest and um, working within the ethical boundaries. Um, but it is such a gray area and every no two situations are the same. But um, I, I, to be honest, I've never seen any dietitians step over into a grey area, do anything a little bit dodgy. Um, I think we're really good at calling each other out anyway, not on social media, um, you know, privately and respectfully in that in that regard. I've seen one or two dietitians call each other and so uh, call each other out on social media, and I just thought it was tacky. I thought they should have gone privately. Yeah, yeah. I think we could do with more guidance from you know the British Dietetics Association, the ASA. HCPC, there's definitely room for some more guidance about um, how dietitians yeah. work with brands in a safe and effective way. Um, I know you've also got a special interest in sports nutrition. Can we talk a little bit about where that interest comes from? Are you a keen sports woman yourself? Um, I love, I'm very active. So I've been active my whole entire life. You know, it's my family are active. We were hill walking on Saturdays, canoeing on Sundays, you know, rock climbing in the summer months. Um, and then we, you, you know, we played sports as well. Like, so I was a swimmer for years until 
you know, I, I took up hockey and realized you could talk and practice and it was fabulous. So um, I did that. And then I kind of did, uh, I had a back injury and then I moved into doing triathlons and things. I've just always been active. I'm not deadly at sport or anything, but I just love it. And um, so that naturally kind of gave me a interest in sports nutrition and I got the relevant qualifications because I wanted to work in that area and you just need to get the relevant qualifications if you do want to work in any sort of specialist area so I got that and then I started working as the performance nutritionist with Athletics Ireland and Sport Ireland in the Rio uh, lead up to Rio Olympics and that was cool so I worked with the Olympians and the Paralympians and that was deadly and um, and then you know I decided not to continue on that avenue um, for lots of different reasons. Uh, one, I just loved fertility and I knew that's where my heart was. Um, and the other is that that's contractual work and um, sports nutrition isn't uh, won't pay childcare. Um, so I knew I was becoming going to go into a baby making mode for the next 10 years. So it just didn't fit with my private life as well. So um, yeah, I, I, I left that behind me for a while. And what was your role when you did work with the athletes? Were you advising on a one-to-one basis or were you uh, providing sort of presentations for the entire teams? How did it work? Well, that was the brilliant thing about working with Athletics Ireland and Sport Ireland is that they were very open to uh, innovation and new ways of doing things. So um, I would work with some athletes one-on-one. It did depend on how good of an athlete they were and how much um, money was put behind that athlete. You know, there are still those things um, to consider. But they did also allow me to kind of grow a nutritional culture within the place, um, even getting white the walls of the kitchen made in whiteboards so I could draw all over them and write nutritional stuff that people could look at while they're eating their lunch. Um, so I, you know, and we did cooking um, skills and stuff like that. I think Anne-Marie Knight, who taught me cooking in King's College, would be horrified at the notion that I'd be cooking, teaching anyone um, in cooking skills, considering I once made her um, a bread and butter pudding without the butter uh, by accident. But uh, no, we, we did a lot of cooking skills and we did breakfast mornings and just trying to build a nutritional culture because if there's a culture of nutrition within the place um, there is a constant buzz about nutrition and the importance of it and if they know who you are um, you know through social media or through the social media on Athletics Ireland or Sport Ireland they knew what you looked like they can approach you at any moment and then you can do informal nutritional education even if it's just in the corridor so um, it was great working with them because they allowed my creative self to come out and were really supportive and I learned so much for from them and uh, there's there's certainly people in there that I really miss um, learning from on a daily basis. Mm. And you mentioned that you did some additional training before becoming a sports dietitian. Um, yeah. What training did that involve? Oh, sorry. I did another postgrad. I just did it by night and distance learning um, from the University of Ulster. Or wasn't it? Or maybe it was Connie. I don't know. I have a few now. You see, that's the problem with doing them. You actually forget where you go. Um, no, it was definitely up north somewhere anyway. But um, no, it was University of Ulster, wasn't it? Yeah, sports and exercise nutrition. So I did that postgrad. It took me two years to do a part-time um, and distant, um, but it was brilliant. I learned a lot. And apart from anything else, it just gives you access to all the journals. It just steers you in your learning. Um, so I find that found that useful. 
I did the Isaac, you know, um, the for the caliper test, you know, being able to do calipers with people. Um, and then I work closely with the other nutritionists and dietitians there, uh, such as Sharon Madigan. Mm-hmm. And now that you're um, a mum yourself, do you think yeah. you're going to develop an interest in sort of infant nutrition and, and weaning and things like that? Because I see a lot of dietitians, they have a child and then suddenly they, they evolve into that space. Yeah, I think people want it from me. So I have my Feed Your Pal page. But to be honest, if people look for consultations, um, unless it's fairly basic stuff, I refer on to other dietitians. Um, And there's not many dietitians um, as pediatric dietitians in Ireland doing private practice. I just think there's Caroline, this solid start on Instagram, and that's it. So I refer her way and I refer to other dietitians. Um, But I have my Feed Your Pal account because people do want it from me. They want to know what I'm feeding him um I don't have pictures of him online like I'm not selling him out um but I would yeah I and I would share other things from other dietitians um you know and there's a lot of fantastic freelance uh pediatric dietitians in the UK so I share a lot of their stuff as well um but I just do that as you know to help people and guide them because they don't know where to look to for this information so I just use it as a method of helping other mums and dads really. So what would you say has been the biggest lesson that you've learned since you've been on your freelance journey Orla? Um, it is that if you're prepared to listen to the good stuff you have to be prepared to listen to the bad stuff so I think people are devils for you know basking in the glory but then when the shit hits the fan oh sorry for cursing when the stuff when bad things happen you know you just have to be prepared for that and there's so much good and bad like you do get trolled within an inch of your life at times people are very mean to you um, and you have to be prepared for that Um, but I think it's just being honest with yourself and honest with others um, and you just need to also be so grateful for anyone who helps you along the way and acknowledge them, let them know that you're grateful. Um, and because greed will kill you, greed will ruin you. You won't be successful if you're greedy. Um, and, you know, that's that's why I always refer to Avian. I think I've referred to Avian Bannon a million times in this. She's Avian Bannon on Instagram as well. But she's just been in my knight in shining armor the whole way. And, you know, Sharon Madigan helped me into sports and there's and the SETI dietitians, um, you know, they they've been wonderful to me. So you just have to be grateful to the people who help you along the way. Stay honest, stay hardworking, um, but you have to be prepared. If you're going to listen to the good stuff, you have to listen to the bad, and that's that's the thing you have to be prepared for. Yeah, I think you've highlighted there's plenty of opportunities out there for all freelance dietitians. We, we don't need to there's loads. There's hardly any of us. Listen, yeah. there's loads of work. Come into the area if you think you're if you think you're good enough. Honestly, there is loads of work. I don't know why more people aren't doing what I do. So do you have any tips or advice to our dietitians listening who are wanting to build their own successful private practice? Where do they begin? Um, firstly, let the other self-employed dietitians know you're out there. They want to help you. Um, you know, uh, dietitians are always caring people. They're always helpful people. Every single one of them will help you. Um, so let them know. Um, unfortunately, you have to join social media because that you know, gets your name out there, you know, gets you in newspapers, on radio stations um, and just known by the general public that you are open for business. So that is part and you can do it in such a way that, you know, keeps your private life private. You know, I'm 
put very few private bits on my social media for that reason. Um, you can do it in a way that suits you, but it probably is needed. Um, and then it's just a case of knuckle down and put in the hard work, but set boundaries at the same time for yourself so that you're not working day and night. I think I did 100 hour weeks for the first three years until I was felt like I was established enough to take a back seat. And, you know, that's just my personality and I probably shouldn't have done that um, on reflection. So um, keep up with the self-care and, it, and there's a lot of perks of self-employment. Um, so, you know, even if you're thinking of starting a family, it can still be the perfect job for you and it might even be the most perfect job for you um, if, if that's the road you're going to go down. Um, but just hard work, put in the grind and be grateful and be thankful and uh, be truthful to yourself and truthful to you others and just keep learning. A lot of dietitians are A-type personalities, perfectionists. Would you describe yourself in that category? No, that's the wonderful thing. So I think that's why they put me in the class in King's College because I was so different to everyone else. Did you do the learning styles thing with them where they, they said whether you were a pragmatist, activist, theorist or reflector? And everyone in the class was reflector. All I think there was 12 of us and 11 of us. Then me, the activist, pragmatist, just drop me in there and I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, so no, I'm completely different than all other dietitians really in my personality I'm not perfectionist at all and I would worry about any perfectionist but going into private practice because they take ages to do anything because nothing is ever right and uh, so they they end up uh, working long hours for le- very little money um, so I would say if you're a perfectionist maybe stay in the hospital um, you know I just don't think private practice is for perfectionists I really don't it's difficult I'm a self-confessed perfectionist uh, are you you need to work on it <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I'm a copywriter so <laughs> oh, okay maybe it suits you then yeah, but it's uh, it's difficult. But a lot of dietitians I've come across, it can it can be a real issue being a perfectionist. You set such high standards and put pressure on yourself, and of course, you can never meet those standards. So, oh, listen, I did an Instagram post the other day and I, it was something about greens and I put pictures of green vegetables in and put the wrong words on top. So I put broccoli when it was cabbage and pak choy when it was something, lettuce. And, you know, everyone was like, God, Orly, you made so many mistakes in that one post. And I was like, I'm just not a perfectionist, you know. But a perf- if you're not a perfectionist, it's okay because you just need to be able to go, oh, listen, I made a mistake and move on. But um, you, you become much more efficient when you're not as much of a perfectionist. But if it's suits you in the role you're in in the freelance world then that's brilliant I'm sure you're there to edit me and control me anyway (laughs) great so um Ola we're coming to the end of our podcast today and we tend to ask our guests three quick fire questions yeah um you know bearing in mind we're still during COVID at the moment what's been your biggest lesson that you've learned it can be personally or professionally during lockdown uh, efficiency, I say, I think it was, I always consider, because I'm not a perfectionist, I always consider myself a very efficient person, um, but I've become more efficient. Um, probably efficiency is incredibly important business-wise and self-care is really important business-wise and, um, and in your private life too. So probably I'll pick both of those if I could. And what would you say has been your biggest achievement to date in terms of your professional work? I I would say my biggest achievement to date was just the the decision to start working with Avon Bannon. 
I think that set the tone for the rest of my professional career. Um, and that was my biggest achievement and the, the, the biggest turning point and the biggest right decision. Good, good. And uh, finally, last question. What, being a dietitian, what would be your favourite food or your last ever meal if you, could, if you had a choice? Indian definitely Indian food um like an Indian takeaway and you know I'd get something with spuds in it obviously because I'm Irish so there'd be paneer maybe uh paneer sag but there would be definitely lamb because I love lamb and I'd have a beer with it several beers actually um cold really cold beers and naan of course but like the naan with everything in it you know like the garlic and the coriander and hell and yeah and the poppadoms and stuff like that that was the best thing about breastfeeding actually because you had such a big appetite that when you got your Indian takeaway you could really relish in everything well now I just find it so filling and I'm not able to finish it but yeah it was the best thing about breastfeeding is the sheer appetite I got from my Indian takeaway when I was treating myself are you still in lockdown in Ireland or can you go out for an Indian now or is it still takeaways um, you can get takeaways. No, there's, they're not open. And even the takeaways, like I've been trying to get one every Saturday and they're just like, sorry, we're, we're booked up. We're, we're not taking any more. You know, yeah. And I'm just not the same because I'm not heavy handed enough with the cream and that, you know, so just not the skills. <laughs> I have an Indian friend, so I might actually tag them in at some point to come over and deliver me paneer sag. Yeah, sounds good. Great. Well, Orla, thanks so much for your time today. I know you're very busy with your family and juggling your work. Um, hope you stay safe and well during lockdown. Thank and, you, you too. Um, thank you for our listeners as well. And we'll have more episodes of Dietitian, which will be coming soon. So thanks for listening and thanks, Orla, for joining us. Great. Thank you very much.